This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, let me begin by uh, thanking Don Pfaff and Terry Sanowski for uh, putting together um, what promises to be a, an extremely interesting meeting, and thanks to all of you for coming here. Uh, I don't presume to provide an answer, or let alone a definition to this question, uh, for at least two simple reasons. One is that I don't think we know enough uh, yet, uh, and the other thing is that it's not one thing. Theory of mind, uh, I think, uh, and I hope that you will think at the end of these talks, is many things, and so questions about uh, whether or not it's unique to humans, I think, need to be changed into questions of which parts might be unique to humans. And to do that, we need to make distinctions, which is primarily what my talk is about, to clarify uh, theory of mind and to begin to be able to think about it and use it scientifically, we need to uh, carve it up into pieces and investigate those pieces. And so if you just do very crudely what I did on this slide here, and you simply plot the number of publications on the y-axis versus time on the x-axis of uh, publications that have the phrase theory of mind in their title, you get the plot that you see here. And it makes a couple of important points. First of all, it should go without saying that if you use synonyms, mentalizing, mind reading, and certainly if you looked for the topic, any paper on the topic of theory of mind, whether or not it has that in its title, uh, you would find a much larger number of papers, absolutely, but I think the patterns would look very similar. And there's two important points here to make. One is that people did start thinking about this some time ago. So there's papers going back quite a ways. Um, there are papers in philosophy of mind on this topic, and there's a large literature primarily from comparative psychology, studying uh, apes and dogs and many other species, some of which you'll hear about today, and from developmental psychology, studying infants and children, which you'll also hear about today. Um, those studies of theory of mind had a curious feature, those developmental psychology and comparative psychology studies, which is that they were focused less on asking what is theory of mind or how can we understand it than on asking do apes have it, do infants have it, at what point in evolution or in development does it arise. What happened recently and what sort of you can see of this sort of inflection bump from 2000 on at the far right end of the scale and what's responsible for the explosion of recent papers on this topic is that it's been infused with neuroimaging. And so there's now a wealth or starting to be a wealth of studies that, uh, that are about the brain that tell us something about theory of mind as well. And here's some more about that from Jason Mitchell. But so what is theory of mind? Theory of mind, very simply, is thinking about people. Um, it's more specific than that, so it's not just you thinking about me up here with a blue shirt or something, but it's you thinking about what's inside my head, that is thinking about other people's minds, thinking about their thoughts, about their intentions, about their feelings and emotions. And uh, that's illustrated in this little cartoon here uh, from one of Andy Whiten's early books. Um, probably the boy on the left here doesn't necessarily have theory of mind yet, except perhaps what his own mind and what he intends to do. The girl in the middle has just sort of a prototypical theory of mind. She's thinking about what the boy is thinking about. So she's representing something that is in the boy's head, whether it's veridical or not. 
And the boy on the far right has even more of a theory of mind. He's thinking not only about the contents of what the girl's thinking about, but derivatively also what the boy on the left is thinking about. So I like this cartoon. It makes a couple of important points. Uh, One question you could begin to ask right away is, well, what is this thinking about minds, this theory of mind, what is the format of that representationally? And in this cartoon, it's pictures. There's little images in these bubbles here. Everything that I've told you has been in language, using words. And so you could imagine a number of different formats. Maybe some of them depend on language. Maybe some of them don't. If we can begin to answer that question, you can also see that it could speak to the question of which parts of theory of mind might be unique to humans. To the extent that it involves language, it's unique to humans. To the extent that it doesn't, it might not be. There's another important point that's made here, which is that theory of mind seems not to be an all-or-none kind of thing necessarily. It's sort of graded, and arguably the boy on the far right has more of a theory of mind or a more complex theory of mind than does the girl in the middle. So there seems to be some kind of hierarchy to this. And again, we could imagine that, well, perhaps very sophisticated, complex, at the top of the hierarchy, theory of mind abilities are unique to humans, but perhaps some simpler ones we share in common with other animals. So let me uh, outline some of the distinctions that people have made in the literature and that I think are important to keep in mind as we think about the talks um, for the rest of the day. So... Uh, One uh, simple way of thinking about theory of mind is uh, as just an ability, a psychological competence to predict people's behavior. So lots of animals, most animals, maybe nearly all animals have this. All animals are able to make some kinds of predictions about other animals' behavior. When I go into, we have two cats at home, when I go into the cat room in the morning, the cats come bolting out into the house from having been penned up all night, but they turn around and they look at me and they see me walk, continue to walk into the cat room towards the food bowls and they make a hairpin turn and come racing back in towards the food bowls. They're able to tell from the direction of my movement that I'm about to give them some kind of a food. Now, they probably don't have concepts from, for, for that. They certainly aren't thinking in terms of language and their behavior seems fairly rigid and is probably based on lots of associations. But nonetheless, they have an ability that looks kind of like mind reading. They're able to infer something about my intention to give them food. Now, in, the, in our case, we're able to combine this with thinking. So we think about this, and we have concepts and, of course, words for this. So, as I mentioned, aspects of that are arguably unique to humans. And then what we want to do is to find the processes, note that this is plural, so there will be multiple, the processes that are responsible for these um, abilities. And then finally, this has been infused, as I mentioned recently, uh, with information about where in the brain, where and how in the brain this happens from neuroimaging data, and that's helping to inform how we think about one, two, and three. And these all have different words associated with them, and this is not by any means a sort of unique mapping here, but if you look at the literature, you find words that refer to each of these four things uh, as denoted up here, folk psychology for the first, mentalizing or mind reading for the second. And I want to say a little bit about three and four, which is that people uh, have, uh, to some extent, thought about two very different uh, kinds of processes and associated with them two different brain systems that subserve mind reading. One is based more on simulation, more on mirroring, has to do a lot more with emotions in many cases, seems more automatic, might be shared more in common with other animals. 
And the second seems much more effortful, uh, may require language to some extent, and seems much more unique to primates or perhaps humans. And so let me just outline, at least intuitively, what those two types of processes and systems are. And again, this isn't any but working in the field here would find lots of details to disagree with, with, with uh, on this. But I think in broad terms, they outline uh, two important distinctions. So one is you, and for that matter, other dogs, looking at dogs with these kinds of postures, are able to make inferences about what these dogs are feeling or intending. So on the far right, uh, another dog looking at this dog would know that the dog is angry and might attack and would guide its behavior accordingly. Now, a dog seeing this in another dog wouldn't have necessarily concepts for this and certainly wouldn't have language. Human dog owners seeing this in their pet would, and you would, rightly or wrongly, uh, impute emotional states to these animals from watching them. Now, what's interesting about this, and as Charles Darwin pointed out in his book from which these illustrations are taken, is that this is very continuous also with the, observe, uh, with the behavior that you observe in other people. We also pick up other people's body postures and their facial expressions. And if somebody is crouching down in pain or slouching and crying or standing up and laughing, again, you infer very quickly that they're in pain, depressed, or happy. So what characterizes all these examples is uh, that they seem pretty effortless. It seems like you pick this up immediately. You sort of mirror what you see in the dog or the other person. Uh, you don't have to put much effort into it. It seems very automatic. and can't, In fact, it seems like you can't help but feel something about the dog or the other person from watching them. It's often concerned with emotions. And so this is one system uh, that has to do with mirroring, simulation, is often related but not exclusively to emotions. And so all of these words refer to one class of processes, let's call them, uh, for uh, mind reading. There's a second one, which uh, is very different, and I'll give sort of an ext uh, extreme example of it here uh, to warm all of you up, wake you up if you've had too heavy a lunch. Imagine playing the following game, okay? We're going to pick a number between 1 and 100. So each of you could imagine or could write down a number between 1 and 100 on a piece of paper. We're going to collect all those in a basket and take the average, Divide them by two, and that's the winning number. What would you write down? So think about it for a minute. Uh, if you want to win this, uh, what number would you write down? Imagine everybody in the room is doing this. Well, you might say, well, what are people going to pick? We're um, going to pick randomly. Some people are going to pick one. Some people are going to pick 50, 80, 100. It sounds like the average should be around 50 in the middle. If I divide that by two, it's 25, so I should write down 25, and that would be the winning number. If you think about it, so that would be sort of the very simplest thing you could do. It doesn't really involve theory of mind, except insofar as you're vaguely aware that other people are also picking these numbers. If you do this, you might reflect on this for a second and say, well, wait a minute. These people look pretty smart. They're probably as smart as I am. I pick 25. Maybe they'll pick 25, too, in which case I should pick 12. And, of course, you could keep going, and you could say, oh, they pick 12, so I should pick 6, 6, and 3, and so forth, and indeed, the Nash equilibrium of this little exercise converges down to zero. This is a, an example that my colleagues from behavioral economics are fond of, um, fond of using. So this illustrates this sort of hierarchical level. That there could be steps of thinking. It's effortful. You're thinking about what other people are doing, what other people are, are, what's going on in other people's minds. And it's competitive and strategic in this example. So it's a very different kind of example 
than looking at someone expressing an emotion or looking at the dog postures. And these kinds of processes are referred to more as mentalizing or theory of mind. So these broad, two broad systems then, one uh, more automatic and effortless, in many cases concerned with emotions that we may share more in common with other animals, and one that's much more strategic, often competitive, very effortful, um, and that may be more unique to humans. As I said, these are extreme examples, and there may be things in the middle, and of course, in many cases, they both come online concurrently. What's uh, interesting is that in the last decade or so, uh, pretty more recently than that, really, neuroscientists have found two brain networks that also seem to correspond to these two classes of processes that I just mentioned to you. One for mirroring, shown on the left here. You'll hear a lot more about that later on in talks. And one for mentalizing or theory of mind on the right. And uh, you needn't pay detailed attention to exactly where these colored blobs are. What these pictures illustrate are regions of brains. These brains are inflated, and that's where they have these funny patterns on them. Regions of brains that are activated when people engage in this kind of mirroring or simulation or when they engage in, the, in, the, in this mentalizing. About the only two important points to make about this is that these two networks, at least to some extent, appear to be distinct. So just like the sets of psychological processes, to some extent, appear to be distinct, so do the brain networks subserving them, and that they consist of more than one place in the brain. So they're a network of many distributed parts of the brain, exactly which is still under debate. But this is, you could consider this a sort of preliminary view of those networks. And then you can have conclusions, as in this meta-analysis from the paper that I cite here, uh, that say what I just said, that indeed there seem to be two distinct systems that operate on different kinds of input to make inferences about other people. So there are a number of open questions, and I was motivated in coming up with these uh, by this book, uh, a very nice background, general background book by Ian Apperley, Mind Readers, that I cite at the bottom, uh, one that I mentioned at the outset is about the nature of the representations for theory of mind. Does it require language? Um, what, what, what is the nature of those kinds of representations, and are they special to theory of mind? And that certainly will inform our understanding of the extent to which it's, it might be unique to humans. We want to then understand the processes that constitute it. And again, we want to understand what are the properties of those processes. So the ones that I outlined to you, some are effortful and volitional, some are fast and automatic, and we can make those distinctions. And then finally, we want to map those onto the brain, and we want to understand what the architecture is between those two processes. So is, what, does one always happen before the other? Do they happen concurrently? Uh, and importantly, how does this relate to the rest of your thinking? So in all the examples that I've told you, you need to be able, for instance, to get input through your perceptual system about another person. So if you close your eyes right now, you can't do theory of mind by watching people because you can't see them. Well, that seems silly in a way. Of course, theory of mind has to, has to interface with perception, but it doesn't seem like perception is sort of constitutive of it. If I close my eyes, my theory of mind abilities don't go away. On the other hand, other things like being able to hold something in memory, being able to pay attention, those seem like they're more necessary for theory of mind and maybe more constitutive. Language would be another example. So one question is, which other aspects of cognition 
are sort of inputs to theory of mind and which might interface more closely with it or even be partly constitutive of it. And again, if we can get a traction on those questions, we can begin to answer the extent to which human theory of mind might be different from that ability in other animals. Um, one interesting finding that I think Michael Arbib will tell you more about is that indeed mirroring ability, uh, well, certainly the neural substrates for it uh, have been found and were first found in uh, animals other than humans. So there are parts of the brain that respond in monkeys to mirroring, to watching other people do something that you would also do yourself. As illustrated here, there's a flattened representation of a monkey brain on the left and fMRI data from a human brain on the right. So one question is if there's a corresponding mentalizing ability in monkeys as well, or whether that is unique in humans and why that might be. Let me finish here um, by outlining at one sort of um, a guess or conjecture of one component of theory of mind that I think might be unique to humans. And part of this is informed by functional imaging data. So if you take this system, this mentalizing system in the brain that's activated in fMRI studies that I mentioned to you, it's activated also when you recollect episodes from your past, when you think about in detail what you will be doing tonight or tomorrow. Um, and so it seems like there's a system that is broader than just theory of mind. And the question is, what do all these things have in common? What does it have in common to recollect events from your past, to think about the future, or to think about another person's mind? Well, they all have in common the ability to generate a conscious experience that's not driven just sort of by sensory input. So I think one ability that humans have is the ability to use representations in a format that uh, contributes to the contents of your conscious experience, but to manipulate this very flexibly to find out about things that happened in the past, to plan things in the future, or to find out about things that, that are happening in somebody else's mind. So let me finish by summarizing on my last slide here. So we infer people's thoughts and intentions and beliefs and feelings, their internal mental states all the time. So in that sense, all of us mind read. That's uncontentious. The processes by which we achieve these are many, and so we need to figure out which they are. It's not a monolithic ability. And it will turn out, I think, that some of these processes are shared in common with other species, and some are unique to humans. You'll hear a lot more about that today. It's still very much in progress. And then finally, they're being identified and mapped onto the brain in neuroimaging studies. One consequence of all of this, then, if you look at this, is... Um, especially three and four, the question is, how do these inform our original question? What is theory of mind? Well, I think they'll do it in a couple of ways, and in particular, they'll make us think that our original sense of mind reading, the original concepts that we had to work with, uh, were sort of ill-posed to begin with, and we need to redefine the way that we think about these processes. So one thing that I think we all want to do at the, well, want to uh, have at the end of this symposium, right now all of you have some intuitive understanding of mind reading. Parts of it are definitely wrong. And so what you want to ask yourself, which parts are wrong and how can I revise this and ask the question again and then move forward with future studies to clarify that new question. And let me end there. Thanks, Don. Okay, so I'd like to start today by asking you to take... <laughs> 
a very careful look at this picture, and I'd like you to do me the favor of raising your hand if you can recognize the movie that this picture comes from. All right, Princess Bride, right? <laughs> so, of course, The Princess Bride is um, a romantic fairy tale, and it's about um, Wesley, the guy in black here, and his beloved Buttercup, the young lady that's blindfolded, and the adventures that they go through trying to evade Prince Humperdinck, the evil Prince Humperdinck, who is trying to strong-arm Buttercup into marrying him. And I want to show you a particular clip from this movie, and first I need to set it up just to make sure, for those of you who have seen the movie, that you remember the scene, and for those of you who haven't, you'll know what's going on. Okay, so the guy that's pointing here is Vinzini. He is an outlaw, secretly employed by evil Prince Humperdinck, and he has kidnapped Buttercup. And Wesley, the man in black, is trying to rescue her. And the way that he does this is by proposing to Vinzini that they engage in a battle of the wits, in which Wesley puts poison into one of two goblets, and then Vinzini has to guess which of two goblets the poison has gone into. So let's watch. Where is the poison? The battle of wits has begun. It ends when you decide and we both drink and find out who is right and who is dead. But it's so simple. All I have to do is divine from what I know of you. Are you the sort of man who would put the poison into his own goblet or his enemies? Now, a clever man would put the poison into his own goblet because he would know that only a great fool would reach for what he was given. I'm not a great fool, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of you. But you must have known I was not a great fool. You would have counted on it, so I can clearly not choose the wine in front of me. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. <laughs> Wait till I get going! was I? You're trying to trick me into giving away something. It won't work. It has worked! You've given everything away! I know where the poison is! Then make your choice. I will! And I choose... What in the world can that be? <laughs> uh, so, of course, this scene is a veritable treasure trove, right, for the theory of mind enthusiast. <laughs> It so beautifully illustrates the rich mental state inferences that we make in service of understanding other people's behavior. And what I want to do today is I want to tell you about how infants first enter into this system, and I'm going to be talking about one specific aspect of theory of mind, how infants understand other people's goals and intentions. And that's because understanding goals and intentions is central to theory of mind. In fact, in order to understand this very scene, we have to be able to recognize goals at a big picture level, to understand that Wesley's goal here is to free Buttercup, Vinzini's goal is to keep her captive. And even at a more fine-grained or local level, to understand, for example, that when Vinzini points here in the scene, his intent is to distract Wesley so that he can switch around the goblets. So essentially, I'm going to tell you about a series of studies, and these studies were aimed at addressing two questions, and that is, first, do infants understand goals or intentions? And of course, to preview, the answer is yes, or I wouldn't be here. And the second question is, how do they develop this understanding? And the take-home message that my talk um, will give today is that active experience, the experience that infants have producing actions, reaching for objects, performing more complex action sequences, using tools, provides them with a basis to understand other people's goals and intentions. Now, the first question that you might have is, how in the world would you pose this question to a preverbal infant? And I want to tell you about an ingenious paradigm that was developed in the 1990s, the mid-1990s, by Amanda Woodward at the University of Chicago that um, took up this question with young infants. So this paradigm relies on the following underlying logic. This event that I've depicted here, if I asked any of you in the room to describe the event, you probably would say something like, she wanted the bear, she grabbed the bear. So the idea here is that you would selectively focus on certain aspects of the event, and that is the relation between the actor and her goal object. 
And that's because you and I, as we see people go about their business in the world, we don't see action as an undifferentiated series of motions through space, but rather as directed towards um, goals, objects, events in the world. So to ask this question of um, infants, what Woodward did is she used um, a paradigm that relies on infants' visual attention, how long they look at things, and on the well-known um, finding that infants tend to show enhanced attention, they look longer to events that are unexpected. So initially, infants saw an event um, just like this, and they saw it repeatedly until they were bored. And then during the test phase of the study, the locations of the objects were switched, and infants saw two new types of test events. In one event, the new goal event, the actor reached for a new goal. Now, to adult eyes, this is the interesting event because the actor's goal has changed. In the other event, the actor maintained her goal, but she reached for the object in a new location. There's a change to the spatiotemporal properties of the event. Now, one thing that's important to point out here is both of these new events feature changes from the initial event, but we think the change on the lower left-hand side is important and the other change is unimportant because we see people's actions in terms of their goals and intentions. And what Woodward found is that at six months of age, infants look longer to the new goal event than the same goal event, suggesting that they represent the simple action in the same way as adults. What we found in subsequent work is that infants at three months of age fail to differentiate these events, suggesting that there's an important development that goes on here in terms of infants' understanding of goals and intentions, at least in simple events like this. The next question that we wanted to try to answer is where does this development come from? What's the source of this development? And the first place that we looked is in infants' own actions, their own ability to produce actions. Because we know that between three and six months of age, infants get good at reaching for objects. So if you take a three-month-old infant and you sit down with them on your lap and you present them with some toys on a table, they'll look intently at those toys, they might move their arms around, they might even swipe at the toys, but they're certainly not producing the smooth, well-executed reaches that older infants do. And so our question was whether this experience of being able to reach for objects might help infants to understand other people's reaches. The way that we first attempted to answer this question is we took a group of three-and-a-half-month-old infants, so of course these infants are pre-reaching, they can't reach for objects on their own, and we brought them into the lab and we had them take part in a reaching intervention. So what we did in this intervention is we put little Velcro mittens on babies. <laughs> Machiavellian scientists, and we presented them with toys with the corresponding side of Velcro. Now, what this meant is that initially, if you sit a baby down in this circumstance, they're going to look at the toys, they're going to flap their arms around, and eventually they'll make contact with the toys, initially accidentally. But after learning that they can make contact, they can move the toys around, what you see is that infants' actions very quickly organize, and they start to produce what look like goal-directed reaches. So they'll look intently at the toy, and they'll get their hand on the toy. So our question here was whether, having given infants this experience, this would change how they perceived an action like this, where someone's reaching for an object. We used a variant of the Woodward paradigm to measure this, first showing infants an event like this, and then changing either the goal that she reached for or changing the way in which she achieved the goal. So these are the results from our study, and what they show is how long infants looked at each of those two events, and you can see that following the reaching intervention, infants looked longer when the actor's goal had changed, suggesting that the reaching intervention caused a change in their perception of the event. Just to make sure that that was the case, we tested another group of three-and-a-half-month-old infants who received the tasks in the reverse order, and these infants failed to differentiate between the events. So these findings suggested to us that having this reaching experience was exerting a causal impact on infants' understanding of other people's behavior.
So this led us to the following hypothesis. We know that infants in the first two years of life get increasingly good at performing actions. They can reach for objects, and then they can solve simple action sequences like this, pulling a blanket to get an out-of-reach toy. And then after that, they can begin to use tools. And the idea here is that as infants learn to act on the world, this might also shape their understanding of other people's behavior. In one study, we tested this hypothesis by bringing 10-month-olds into the lab, and we gave them a task that looked just like this, a cloth-pulling task where they can pull a cloth to get an out-of-reach toy. Now, at 10 months, some infants are really good at solving the task. You present them with the problem, they quickly pull the cloth and grasp the toy. Other infants are not so good at solving it, so they can't seem to organize their actions towards getting the toy. And then we tested them in a looking time-based task where they saw another person use the cloth to get an out-of-reach toy. And our question here was whether infants could recognize, upon acting on the cloth, that the actor was using it to achieve the goal of getting the toy. What we found here is that infants who were good at performing this action in their own actions, who could readily pull the cloth to solve the toy, could identify the actor's goal here that it was the toy, whereas infants who were not good at solving the problem could not. So what these findings suggested to us is that active experience is doing something to facilitate infants' understanding of goals and intentions. And what we wanted to do next was look further to try to sort of further elucidate what was going on um, in terms of the role that active experience plays in infants' goal understanding. So one question that we wanted to ask was whether there might be something unique or special about infants' active experience. So infants, not only as they get older, have experience acting on the world, they also have experience watching other people act. And indeed, as infants learn to perform different actions, they have correlated visual experience. So when I reach for an object, I not only have the motor experience of reaching, I can also see myself reaching. So we were essentially trying to disentangle these two potential effects. So these are 10-month-old infants shown here. They came into our laboratory, and they were placed into one of two groups or conditions. Um, the picture on the top shows a baby who's receiving training and practice using the tool to get the out-of-reach toy in their own actions. And we compared these babies to another group who saw a tool use sequence, the training, an adult being trained on how to use the tool to get an out-of-reach toy. And then again, we tested them on a looking-based paradigm that got at their ability to recognize that when they see another person use a tool, they're doing that in service of the goal of obtaining the toy. What we found in these studies was that infants who received training and practice, but not infants who received just observation, appeared to understand or be able to identify the actor's goal. Suggesting that there's something special or unique about acting on the world that infants get over and above just observing other people's actions. The next thing that we wanted to know was whether infants could go beyond recognizing or identifying goals in um, goals that have been completed or enacted, right? So I told you about, for example, infants' ability to perceive the goal of a reaching action that's been completed. Now, as adults, we can, of course, go beyond this because we recognize that mental states aren't synonymous with actions, right? We can recognize you can have a goal and it's, it hasn't been achieved yet. And so if we see a picture like this, we can recognize that this person probably isn't grabbing the tool to pick it up. They're using it in service of the goal of getting the toy. We wanted to know if this was something that infants could do as well. And so in this study, again, we brought in 10-month-old infants. They received either training using the um, cane as a tool to get the toy or a matched observational session. And then they saw just the first part of this action sequence. So they saw someone grasping the base of the cane. And then we showed them outcome events in which the person was either holding the toy or the cane. So the idea here is that if infants understand that this initial grasp of the cane is directed towards the goal of getting the toy, then the surprising event should be the person holding the cane, even though that was the visible evidence that they were presented with earlier. And what we found was that active experience, again, uniquely, ex helped infants to not only recognize the goal of ongoing actions, but anticipate or predict upcoming goals. 
Um, and the last behavioral experiment that I'll tell you about today, um, our question was whether infants could recognize the conditions under which goals can be achieved. So if I were to show you um, an action in the top, that's depicted in the top picture here, so this is someone who has used a precision grasp to pick up a bowl and move it across the table. And then in the bottom part of the slide, what you see is now the bowl has been inverted, right? And you're seeing the person either produce the same hand grasp she did initially or a whole hand grasp. Now here, you and I would think that the picture on the lower left is unusual, right? Because this person has the goal of moving the object, but now, based on how she's grabbing the object and the fact that it's inverted, she can't enact that goal. What we found in this study is that infants, depending on whether or not they could produce the precision grasp, could then use that information to predict whether or not a person could achieve their goal. So infants who could do the precision grasp thought this lower left-hand picture was the unexpected one. So active experience also helps infants to predict the conditions under which people can achieve goals. So now I've just given you a whole lot of behavioral evidence that active experience plays an important role in infant's goal understanding. And in the final study that I tell you about today, I want to kind of go a step beyond this and start to ask questions about the underlying mechanism here. How is it that active experience facilitates infant's goal understanding? Now, earlier we heard about mirror neurons, right? These are the neurons in monkeys that discharge both when a monkey is acting and when they observe another person act. And we also know that there is an analogous system in human adults, right? An area of brain network, a brain network that activates both during the production of action and the perception of other people's actions. And of course, people have been excited about these findings because they think, hey, this may be um, one of the ways that people understand other people's actions. When they're observing actions, their own motor plans or representations are activated, and those provide some sort of a guide or template for understanding the behavior of others, with some caveats that were raised earlier today. So we wanted to try to get at the neural system underlying infant's action observation. And of course, with infants, you can't do things like single-cell recordings because they're invasive, and you can't test them in fMRI because they're squirmy. <laughs> well, fortunately, um, researchers had discovered that... Um, one thing that you can do, both with adults and with infants, is record electrical activity produced by the brain as it propagates to the scalp, right, by placing non-invasive sensors on the scalp. And there's a particular brain rhythm called the mu rhythm that appears to reflect or index the human mu neuron system, or as, as I like to call it, the action observation execution matching system. So this is a rhythm that is um, attenuated, reduced in amplitude, both when individuals act and when they observe other people act. It's um, prominent over sensory motor cortices, and it, the um, mu rhythm suppression is correlated with activation of the structures that are involved in the action observation execution matching system. So our question was whether we could look at this, the suppression of this rhythm in infants and whether it would be present when they observed other people act. And we had an additional question above and beyond that. We wanted to know whether um, mu rhythm suppression would be uniquely present depending on if infants were experienced with the action that they were observing. So in this study, um, we brought 12-month-old infants into the lab. And we tested them in a, a sort of interactive paradigm where on some trials they watched and in some trials they acted. So on trials that they watched, they watched an experimenter um, lift a series of increasingly heavy blocks and the experimenter would do things like, them, like lift them into a bucket or lift them up into a platform. And then infants were given the opportunity to act. Now, this is a skilled lifting task. So at 12 months, some infants are pretty good at this and some infants are not so good at this. And so, of course, in our sample, some of the infants performed this behavior really frequently and they were good at it. And some of the infants performed this behavior less frequently and they weren't very good at it. 
And we wanted to know whether that had consequences for mu rhythm suppression when they were observing the experimenter lift the block. Okay, so this graph is going to show you um, mu attenuation as a function of infants' lifting status, whether they were infrequent um, lifters or more frequent experienced lifters. And what you can see here is that mu rhythm suppression is uniquely um, present in those infants who are experienced at lifting the block. Now, one other thing that we did in the study is we looked at whether infants' production of other actions during the task would predict mu rhythm suppression. So sometimes infants do things like push the block. But pushing the block was totally unrelated to what we saw during um, infants' observation of other people's actions. So these findings suggested to us that active experience shapes the neural system underlying action observation. So what may be happening during the course of development, as infants get good at producing actions, they load down motor plans, motor representations, that then help them out, provide a guide or a template when they watch other people's actions. Um, now, I just want to end today by telling you that I've told you a lot about what infants understand about other people's goals and intentions and how they might achieve this understanding, but I want to point out that this is just, of course, one aspect of theory of mind, and um, many people are interested in the question of theory of mind in infancy. So there are labs around the country and around the world that have investigated other aspects of theory of mind. There appears to be evidence for infants' understanding of desires, perceptual states, preferences and dispositions, and perhaps even possessing an implicit understanding of other people's beliefs. Thank you. I'm not sure what we should read into the fact that this talk on uh, adolescence is in the session on animal cognition. <laughs> Actually, whenever I tell people I work on adolescence, it seems that um, making a joke about adolescence isn't just socially acceptable, it's completely obligatory. People say, what, you work on the teenage brain? Does that actually exist? Or, you know, good luck with that. <laughs> um, it's kind of curious that it's totally acceptable to make fun of this whole section of society, and I'm not quite sure why we do it. Um, okay, so what, the reason I became interested in adolescence uh, are twofold. Firstly, um, because it seems to be a sensitive period for uh, the development of... Um, the development of uh, various different psychiatric and psychological illnesses. So things like depression, anxiety, eating disorders, schizophrenia, addictions, they tend to have their onset during the period of adolescence. A second reason why I'm interested in adolescence is because uh, it seems to be a period of life where we undergo a kind of transformation. Of course, physical, hormonally, we change, but we also change in terms of cognitive and, and particularly social cognitive processes. So um, to illustrate this, I thought I'd read you a letter that was written to the Guardian newspaper. So the Guardian is a, is a British newspaper. And this is a, a letter by a reader who says, there's nothing like teenage diaries for putting momentous historical events in perspective. This is my entry for the 20th of July, 1969. I went to the art centre by myself in yellow cords and blouse. Ian was there, but he didn't speak to me. Got rhyme put in my handbag from someone who's apparently got a crush on me. It's Nicholas, I think. Ugh. Man landed on moon. <laughs> I, 
love this letter. I think it's such a nice characterization of what it's like to be a teenager and what the world looks like to a teenager. This is a really important period of life where you develop a sort of very profound sense of self. Your sense of self undergoes change. Um, you, you, know, you become very um, preoccupied with things like what you look like, what you're wearing, what music you like, what kind of person you are, your moral beliefs, your political beliefs, who you hang out with. This is a period of life where self-identity really profoundly comes online. That's not to say that children don't have a sense of self. Of course they do. But what really matters to a teenager changes. Um, it's a period of life where there's a drive for teenagers to become independent from their parents and their families and to become affiliated with their peers, with their friends. So the sense of social self undergoes change as well. And that's what, I'm, uh, that's what my work really focuses on. So um, one area where... <laughs> one area of... <laughs> One area of research where uh, the, the um, effect of one's peers has on behaviour is in the domain of risk-taking. So it's well known, we all know that teenagers take risks. Risk-taking in many different circumstances peaks in, uh, during the teenage years. And this has been studied for many decades uh, in social psychology and more recently in the lab, particularly by uh, Larry Steinberg, who's a very, very famous researcher of adolescent development at the uh, Temple University here in the US. So he's brought teenagers and other groups into his lab, and he gets them to take part in a kind of driving video game that looks like this. So they drive around like a video arcade game, um, and you can record the number of risks they take, like the number of red lights they drive through, how fast they drive how many crashes they have. So he tests um, three groups in this particular study, adolescents who are 13 to 16-year-olds, young adults, 17 to 24-year-olds, that's the uh, green bars, the adolescents are red, the young adults are green, and adults 25 and over in white. This uh, graph shows the number of crashes they had when they were being tested on their own. You can see that actually the number of crashes, any kind of uh, measure of risk shows a similar pattern of response, is very similar for three groups when they're on their own. However, when they have a couple of friends standing behind them, that dramatically (laughs) increases the number of risks adolescence takes, doubles the number of risks young adults take, and it makes no difference to the number of risks that adults 25 and over take. And this kind of data is borne out by driving insurance company uh, epidemiological data. Yes, young people do have more crashes than older adults, but if you look at the circumstances under which they tend to have crashes, it's almost always when they have a same-aged passenger in the car with them. So... um, Thinking about this research, my PhD student Kate Mills and I have recently been starting to think about a framework for adolescent typical behaviour. So if you think about any kind of decision that you make, so it might be a kind of health-related or risk-related decision, like shall I drive really fast, you weigh up various pros and cons of driving really fast. There are advantages. It's useful. It might get you somewhere quicker. You might get a kick out of driving really fast, but on the other hand, there are also um, disadvantages, like you might crash or you might get caught by the police and get a speeding ticket. In addition to those pros and cons, there's another factor that weighs in in all decisions we make, and that's a social factor. We all behave differently when we're in groups compared to when we're on our own. We, we make decisions differently when we think other people are watching us or judging our decisions. And what we're suggesting, which 
has been suggested before in various different guises, is that the social factor weighs in more heavily for adolescents than at any other uh, period of life. So we're really interested in the social brain and how the social brain develops during the period of adolescence. And what I mean by the social brain, which, which you have heard much about already today, but I like to illustrate it with this nice photograph of uh, Liverpool, Liverpool Football Club, that's a soccer club to you, <laughs> um, and Michael Owen, who's a very famous English uh, soccer player, just having missed a goal. So what this picture shows you uh, is two ways in which your social brain works. Firstly, it shows you how automatic and instinctive social-emotional responses are. So everyone within a split second of Michael Owen missing this goal is doing the same thing with their arms and the same thing with their face. Even Michael Owen is as he slides along the ground. Um, uh, except these guys aren't here in yellow, but I think they're on the wrong end of the stadium. <laughs> Um, and the second aspect of the social brain that this photograph really nicely illustrates is how good we are at reading other people's behaviour. You don't have to ask any of these guys. Just from looking at their face, their bodies, their gestures, their behaviour, you have a really good understanding of what they're thinking and feeling at that precise moment in time. And I think that that really is theory of mind. The ability to read other people's behaviour in terms of their underlying mental states and emotions. Now, in developmental psychology, we've heard a little bit about that. We're going to hear more later. Um, theory of mind is mostly focused on preschoolers and we know that theory of mind development undergoes a kind of stepwise change in the first few years of life and that's really nicely illustrated here in this video. This is a study by Tomasello and his group showing uh, spontaneous helping behaviours in 18 month old toddlers so these toddlers just came into the lab, weren't given any instructions and the results are quite clear from watching this video Oh And look at the eye contact at the end. Like, duh. <laughs> um, so, in order to show that kind of spontaneous helping behaviour, that infant, well, you could argue that that infant must have inferred a mental state in that adult. It mu he must have inferred the intention of the adult was to open the cupboard and put the books in. So that really is theory of mind. It develops it before 18 months and it continues to develop after 18 months. And I'm particularly interested in how uh, mentalising and the social and the neural correlates of social cognition develop in the period of adolescence. So how does the social brain develop in adolescence? Now, just very briefly... Uh, until 15 years ago, we did not know how the brain develops in, in human adolescence because we didn't have the tools to look inside the living human brain. We, ha we relied on uh, developmental neurobiology in animals and the very small number of post-mortem human brain studies. There were just very few out there, and there still are very few. But in the last 15 years, uh, people have discovered a great deal about how the human brain develops across the lifespan by using MRI scanning. I'm sure many of you have had MRI scans for various different reasons. Um, MRI gives us very high-resolution structural images of the human brain, 
using which we can measure things like white matter, which contains the long fibres that connect up neurons together. And we can also measure grey matter. Grey matter is mostly found in the cortex, the surface of the brain, and contains many different things, including cell bodies, so neuronal cell bodies, and connections, the synapses between cells. And we can also use MRI to measure brain activity. So we put people in a brain scanner and look at uh, which parts of their brain are working when they're doing a particular task. So when you do that, uh, you find that um, if you get people to do some kind of mentalizing or theory of mind task, as we've already heard uh, earlier on today, you find a circumscribed network of brain regions is activated during theory of mind tasks in adults. And I won't go into into the details about this network. Suffice to say that there are four or five regions involved, And these regions are consistently activated when you think about other people's minds. It actually doesn't matter how you get people to think about other people's minds. You could get them to read stories or watch videos or cartoons. As long as they're thinking about other people's minds, uh, these regions, this network of regions will be activated. So in a recent study uh, with my PhD student Kate Mills and our collaborator Jay Geed at the NIH, uh, we've been looking at the structural development of the social brain in adolescence. So Jay Geed runs the biggest uh, pediatric neuroimaging project at NIMH where he has uh, scanned children, adolescents and adults as they get older for the last about 15 or 20 years now. So in this particular study we uh, looked at brain scans from 288 individuals aged between 7 and 30 years. Each participant is scanned uh, um, between 2 and 7 times at least 2 years apart. So we're working with a total of 857 scans. So it's a relatively large study. Um, So we focused in, I'm just going to show you one data slide, we focused on those areas within the social brain network, which we defined from adult studies. And basically, um, so what you're looking at here is these four regions of the social brain network. It doesn't really matter which ones they are. They all show a very similar developmental pattern during adolescence. Between the ages of, uh, well, 7 and 25 in the total sample, but the um, the ages are on the horizontal axis down here. This is gre- the volume of grey matter on the vertical axis. The middle um, line is the uh, developmental trajectory across the entire sample, so all 288 individuals. The top line in each graph is boys, and the bottom line is girls. So um, the first thing that you should notice is that each of these regions undergoes very significant development during the period of adolescence. And in each region, uh, there's a kind of cubic relationship between grey matter volume and age. uh, And during adolescence, there's a very significant decline in grey matter volume. Um, That is thought to correspond to a very important neurodevelopmental process Uh, at least in part, it's thought to correspond to the process where connections between cells are pruned away. And it's not a kind of neurodegenerative process. It's thought to be a really important process where the brain becomes fine-tuned to the environment that the person finds him or herself in. Um, There have also been lots of functional imaging studies, so fMRI studies, of the social brain uh, network during adolescence. And I won't go into any detail because I don't have time, but just to show you this meta-analysis of nine different fMRI studies, the only nine (laughs) fMRI studies that have compared social brain activity, or bold signal as um, as, as it's called, from uh, the activity from the fMRI scanner, uh, in adolescence and adolescence 
adults, and all nine of them show the same thing, which is that this region of medial prefrontal cortex, right at the front of the brain, uh, shows a significant decline in activity as you go through adolescence into adulthood when you think about other people's minds. We don't know why that is. We don't know why adolescents activate this region more than adults do, but we think it might have something to do with the the cognitive strategy that they use to do these kinds of tasks. And that leads me on to my final, uh, the final kind of um, section of my talk, which is looking at uh, cognitive behaviour during this period of life. So we know that the social brain develops both in terms of its structure, grey matter, and also its function or activity during adolescence. What about social cognitive behaviour? Remember right at the beginning of this talk, I told you that most developmental psychology research points to very early childhood as the period of life where theory of mind develops. Um, Most theory of mind tasks um, reach ceiling effect after about age five. That means after age five, there is no continued improvement on those particular theory of mind tasks. But with my uh, former postdoc, Iroise Dumonté, we wanted to find a task that doesn't result in ceiling effects, even in adults. In other words, we wanted to find a task that uses theory of mind, but that results in um, a lot of variance in performance, even in adults. So we used this task called the director task, originally um, designed by Kayser and colleagues, where you see a set of shelves and you see various different objects on these shelves. There's a director standing behind this set of shelves. And the critical point here is that some of the objects that you can see, he can't see because they're occluded from his point of view or his perspective uh, by this opaque piece of wood or whatever. And this is the same set of shelves from the director's point of view. Now, he's never going to be asking you to move objects that he can't see. He will ask you to move objects around, like he might say, move the cow down, in which case you take the cow with a computer mouse and you'd move it down one. So this introduces a really nice, uh, kind of interesting conflict condition, where there's a conflict between your perspective and the director's perspective. So imagine he asks you in this condition, move the top truck up. So there are three trucks here from your perspective. However, he can't see this top one that you can see. So from his perspective, he must intend you to move this blue one here. And that would be the correct one to move. So in the original version of this task, normal, healthy, intelligent adults made errors about 50% of the time in these trials. And they moved this top truck from their perspective. Apparently, their own egocentric perspective interfered with remembering to take the director's perspective and uh, allow that to guide their decisions. So we introduced a control condition where here there's no director, he's gone. And we tell you, okay, now all you have to do is remember a rule. And the rule is ignore objects with a dark grey background. If an object has a dark grey background, don't touch it. Um, so in this case, you can see that if we say move the top truck up, it's exactly the same condition. You, you go for this one because that's the top truck, but then um, you realise it's got a grey background, so you don't touch it. It's exactly the same condition, actually, except you don't need to take someone else's perspective into account to guide your decisions. So I'm going to show you the results. Um, This is percentage errors. So the higher the bars, the worse people are doing. And we tested about 180, in this case, uh, female participants between age 7 and 27. So these are five different age groups here. And I'll now show you the data. So um, 
the, the, these are percentage errors in blue for the director condition. That's when you have to take the director's perspective. And in green for the no director condition. If you look at the adults first, so our adults are making errors in almost 50% of trials where they had to take the director's perspective in order to, to move the correct object. But in the no director condition where they just had to remember the rule, they're performing much better. Developmentally, these two conditions follow an identical developmental trajectory, just improving gradually between late childhood and mid-adolescence. However, after mid-adolescence, there's a difference, and that is that there is no continued improvement in... um, Inaccuracy for the no director condition between mid-adolescence and adulthood. However, the ability to take into account the director's perspective to guide ongoing behaviour is still developing at this relatively late stage in somewhere between mid-adolescence and adulthood. So, so perspective taking seems to be changing uh, during late adole- adolescence. That's not to say it ever gets that good. <laughs> Adults are not very good at this task either. Um, so what I think is developing isn't theory of mind per se... But the usage of theory of mind in order to guide decisions and actions, and actually that, if you think about it, is much more like how we use theory of mind in everyday life. We use it all the time when we're making decisions and acting and behaving in the world. So just to summarise, the adolescent brain is still developing. It's still very much in development. The social brain develops in terms of structure, function and behaviour in adolescence. And social acceptance by peers, we, th- we think, is a key determinant of adolescent typical behaviour. So thank you for listening and thank you to my research group. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.